and welcome to the Carrie podcast. What stays with me when I reflect on my time as a shopkeeper are the countless coffees, cocktails, laughs and tears that I had along the way with fellow business owners. And so I wanted to share some of the conversations with the friends I've made along the way and tell some of the stories that led to the handbook I never really found. I've also invited my wonderful friend Natalie Stajic to join me each week and chat through each of the conversations that we had with the special guests and talk about what we found thought-provoking or fresh or insightful in some way. Natalie is a self-discovery and mastery coach and founder of coaching studio On Balance. So if you haven't already come across it, please check it out. She is incredibly insightful and open and also enjoys talking about food as much as I do. She has made it so much easier and less daunting sitting next to me. So thank you, Natalie. I promise each episode won't be as long as this one. There were a couple of extra things we wanted to cram into the first one. So buckle up or lace up or sit down with a cuppa and see you on the other side. going to be about you but I feel that people will want to hear about the journey that you've taken from deciding to close Caro as a shop to what you're doing now so I'm wondering if you wanted to talk about the steps that you've taken I know from speaking with you that it wasn't a knee-jerk reaction that it's taken some time so I wonder if you can talk us through that process yes so I closed Caro the shop about what three months ago now I mean, there's been so many factors in it. A retail was a completely different space when I opened eight years ago. Mm. Since then, we've had Brexit and we've had a lockdown. (laughs) And actually, the lockdown was really good for me because I got a grant and I was able to invest that money into doing my website, which I never previously had had time to do. Mm. So the lockdown didn't really affect me. And also when we then came out of lockdown, everybody was shopping like crazy. And Bruton is quite a touristy place. So we had loads of people weekending, coming on holiday here. So actually, I really benefited from that experience you know retail wise I mean obviously mentally uh, that was different but before that I had become aware that retail is very hard to make really proper money in and so I spent a lot of my energy trying to make it a bigger business you know that could maybe turn over a better profit Mm. now I'm not really that driven by online retail I spent years experimenting with lots of different channels to see where I could take Caro um, to become a sort of bigger business now I think that was great because I think it helped develop the brand and make the brand stronger but then Brexit came along and Brexit just then completely changed it For example, if I was going to make a three grand order with a supplier from Europe, Brexit meant that there was a customs tax and that customs tax for a £3,000 order would be £700 Mm. and that would go straight into my margin. So 
it then became su- such a difficult space in an area of retail that is really hard to make any money anyway. Mm. And I also had a feeling that I wanted to pursue a more personally fulfilling creative endeavours, basically. And alongside everything that was going on with Brexit, I just thought, I'm just going to go there. Amazing. And it's really refreshing to hear that you were able to sort of let go before you were pushed to let go of the idea. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really refreshing to hear that you were able to let go of Caro the shop before you were pushed to let go of it. Yeah. And so you've spoken to the practical aspects of that decision and I'm curious as to what it's meant for you emotionally because you've had Caro for, is it eight years now? Yeah. So in terms of your identity being wrapped up with the store, how has that felt for you, letting go of the shop element? It's not as difficult as I thought it would be. I think probably the decision to close the shop didn't come sooner because I was so attached to it. It's the only job I've had that's really felt fulfilling I've had lots of other jobs but there was always this and really exciting jobs when you set something up the nature of it is so a reflection of who you are (laughs) um, which it was it it becomes really hard to you lose your identity in what you've done so sometimes I would think oh god maybe I should close the shop and then I think no because who am I Mm. if I close the shop And what else is there to be? I like cooking, (laughs) you know. So I, I did get, I would have cold feet if ever that thought came into my mind. And then I did speak to, I did start asking a few friends who have had shops in the past and I contacted them and, and found out how they felt with them closing in terms of their identity. And it was really interesting. I had heard such a broad mix of of feedback but again when I could see that there was that the life I would be stepping into actually would give me a sense of identity that excited me that's when I really knew with my gut that actually yeah I I, I think that that is the right thing to do mm. and so what is this life that you're stepping into <laughs> yeah, what is it well I guess <laughs> that's what I'm experimenting with now mm. writing Okay. So I have joined a writing group and learning. I mean, it's like anything. When you first step into a whole world that you don't really know much about and you think, oh, I'll just start writing, <laughs> you're very quickly made aware that there's a lot more to it than that. So I am at the beginning of that journey. I'm just exploring all different types of writing, from screenwriting to living autobiography to creative writing and it's it's yeah it's brilliant Mm. so that's one thing and color consultancy yes and I'm so intrigued to hear more about this I am interested in color because I have noticed how much it changes how I feel within my own home Mm. and also with people coming in the shop because I've had three different looks I think um in the shop and the f- the first one was really colorful we had like five different colors over the walls and then I went to a very sort of neutral base with some dark green and then brown in the window um 
And the whole space just completely transformed. And it definitely changed how people felt when they came in the shop. And it also changed how the objects within the shop felt Mm. and changed people buying behaviour. So I'm fascinated by how our emotive state can can be affected by colour. Right. You are actually producing a podcast as well. And I'm wondering, from Carry the Shop to Carry the Podcast, how did that happen? The thing that has given me the most joy at Caro is the people that I've met. And it felt right for me to continue those conversations. Also, the podcasts that I listen to the most are interviews with other people. And I thought it would be really nice to share the conversations with the interesting people that I've met on my Caro journey. If you were opening a shop today, how would you approach it? Oof. I would really consider the the aesthetic offering of what that retail concept is going to be because manufacturing in the UK still has a long way to go. So there isn't much here in terms of manufacturing. So if you're falling on makers and designers, then that's brilliant, but you've got to remember that the unit cost of each item is going to be a lot higher. You've just got to really think about how that it differentiates itself from all the other brands that are out there or companies that are out there. And mm. I say research is so important to just do your research, have a clear strategy and position for what you want your shop to be. Mm. And you did Caro on your own. Um, if you were to do it again, would you work with a partner? Yes. It can be quite a lonely space setting up a business on your own. Mm. not lonely as in physically lonely but lonely in terms of making decisions Mm -hmm. so if I was to do another business again then I would definitely want a partner in crime to do it with Mm. but again choosing that partner is so hard that was one of the decisions that I was going through when I was thinking about closing the shop is if I take the retail aspect into something much bigger where there's investment Mm. do I sell half the business and it is such a huge deal I think I'd want to do it um a fresh you know a, a fresh brand I didn't want to sort of sell Caro to somebody else mm. I think that's you know quite a wise way to look at it really because we can look at those opportunities as just an opportunity but they come with such complexities as well bringing other people into a business you know especially one that you've already established that was your baby that comes with emotions Mm. and and, yeah and it's more exciting when you when you're sort of starting something afresh with somebody from the Mm. beginning that momentum I don't think you know there's there's a there's a different energy when you're carrying something on as a as opposed to starting something afresh and that momentum to get something off the ground is so needed I think yeah yes absolutely I mean if someone was coming in after eight years I've already had eight years of all that energy Mm -hmm. Are you someone that's always followed your gut then? You said you lived sort of very much in the moment. Was that driven by gut instinct? Uh, now that's a, I have an interesting view as well on gut. And I think, I think we should be able to follow our guts, but I think we have to look at how healthy our gut is. And by that, I mean like the experiences that we have had that have taken us to the age that we are when we're choosing to follow our gut. And I think we have to have healthy guts in order to follow them. So I think sometimes we have to do that sort of inner work to sort of, make sure that when we're listening to our gut it really is a true gut instinct rather than a triggered response that's really well said mm. you want a healthy gut yeah.
Natalie for that lovely chat about Caro. I now take you to my chat with Flora Shedden, the founder of Aran Bakery in Scotland. She first opened her bakery at 21. She has a serious work ethic, an incredible eye and amazing sense of taste. I first got to know her when I started stocking her book Aran in Caro and the local chefs, of which Bruton has quite a few, would come in and wax lyrical about her bakery. So it is such a pleasure to talk to her and I hope you enjoy it. Um, so firstly, welcome to the podcast, Flora. Thank, Thank you so much for coming on. Um, how and where did you learn to make such delicious baked goods? Um, it's very boring, but I'm from a very Scottish baking orientated family and I've had great grannies that have been brilliant at cooking. My mum's an amazing cook. Um, I always wish there was some like really, you know, amazing kind of story or tale and there was just this book that I picked up and that was it but no I just I was brought up in the kitchen and yeah I, I wish it was more exciting than that but <laughs> so it was a really fat a family affair and I've, I find that I don't actually hear that very often usually people I've spoken to are trained and gone to cookery school or whatever so it feels quite different actually to hear that yeah, I suppose. I mean, I had a I had a friend who, well, we still do have a lovely friend, a chef called Will, and he used to tease me rotten for not being professionally trained. And, you know, he was always the PTC, he was the professionally trained chef, and I was, I was a cook. I mean, I very much describe myself as a cook, and I think that's just what happens when you have no qualifications or, you know, Lots of lots of mistakes. That would be my experience. There's lots of mistakes and errors, but <laughs> not much else. Oh my god, you definitely have learned from all those mistakes. I'm going to Scotland in the summer, and I've booked somewhere just near you, so I can't wait to actually try it all myself. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to choose. <laughs> yeah. You've previously hosted a program for BBC Radio Scotland and wrote a regular column for the telegraph um how do you find being on the other side of the food industry compared to when you were writing and talking about it it's funny i think all these kind of things came out um i really i was aware when i was food writing and talking about it and things that i really missed that um firsthand cooking for people um particularly when i was writing about food um which i still do and i still adore but um back then it was full time and I found it so bizarre that I would sit down and, you know, cook this big meal for six people and then there's nobody there and you're, you know, you're testing it and you're sitting eating roast chicken in your pyjamas at nine o'clock in the morning and thinking, right, okay, this is a very weird setup that I have on the go just because you tested it so many times. And I just missed that cooking for people and the immediate feedback that you get as well. Um, I think particularly with recipes, it can be really subjective and you can do things in different ways. And even, you know, some of the bakers, I can write a recipe and the bakers at work can do it in a completely different way. And I think I just missed that more hands-on approach and having the face-to-face with a customer. So I, I really love it. I love being back doing that. And that's kind of what I started in my teens is we would go and cater these events or 
I was working as a waitress for a long time. And yeah, I think it was just trying to get back to that and maybe have a bit more balance. And had having a bakery of your own always been a dream of yours? No. <laughs> and it really wasn't something that I kind of ever <laughs> planned or, um, you know, it was a funny one of those ones that just comes about and everything happens at a very similar time. Um, I was moving back. I was living in St. Andrews, um, which is a wee Fife town. And I was moving back home. I knew I wanted to be back at Dunhild. I met a man. I mean, that always ruins these plans, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and he was looking for somewhere to live. I was looking for somewhere to live. And I kind of had started this idea about a shop. Um, I met Angus, who is our head baker and is just the loveliest man you'll ever meet. And he wanted to open a bakery. And I kind of thought, well, you know, why, why not? It wasn't, you know, the kind of years of plotting and planning and dreaming. It just sort of all fell into place. And we found this building where we could live upstairs and we could operate a bakery downstairs. And it happened. I mean, it was ridiculous that I bought a house with a man that I'd known for five months and that I opened a bakery when I, you know, we bought that when I was, we found out on my 21st birthday that we bought it and it was just the most bizarre. In hindsight, I think, why did my parents let me do that? <laughs> you know, I was leaving uni again. I've dropped out of university twice now and what did you choose to study both the times you went? I'm curious as to what the other side of floor is. So for my first one was architecture, um, which I really, really would have loved to have, you know, done fully, I think. Um, I think it was more, I loved the course. I loved the topic. I loved the studying of it. I think I was just really bad at being at university and doing all the things you're supposed to do when you're at university and I just wanted to go and cook things and you know I'm a bit of a home bird as well which doesn't help these things <laughs> and then my other course was history of art and maths as a joint honours at St Andrews and I think that kind of probably says quite a lot I have half of my brain is really scientific and I like things just so and I like things to work I like the sort of um, things being a yes or a no with maths I love that side of things and then I have this other half that's quite creative and artistic and and maybe maybe that's why university didn't work because I was trying to kind of merge those two things together all the time and architecture seemed like an obvious choice but um yeah maybe maybe one day I don't sit a hard hat, but maybe one day I will get into the architecture again. The maths and the creativity together are also really, oh, your your feeling for precision is also a really good recipe for baking because you do have to have that good idea of proportions and doing things very precisely. I think so. And I think there's one of those ones that actually, I mean, I didn't I hadn't really processed it like that way. And then you start kind of having these conversations a bit like this and everybody's like, well, baking's perfect. That's, you know, arts and science slap bind together. And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So that does make sense. I think the nice thing about baking is, yeah, there is precision, but there's also like a, a room for a bit of flair and change and, um, you know, adding your own touch. And yeah, that probably is sort of one of the reasons that I enjoy it so much. So you've written two books. What's your process when it comes to writing and where did you get your inspirations for all the recipe building? Well, I've, been, I've actually, my kind of dirty secret is that I've done three books. 
<laughs> um, I mean, it's not a dirty secret. Oh, have you? Like doing it a disservice. Well, I so the first book I wrote was called Gatherings, and I did that um, very early on. And I, at that time, I had an agent, um, and she got me this deal, and it was kind of the best paid deal out of all the ones that I was offered, and it was a big publishing house, and it was I was kind of swept up in how glamorous it all was I think um and I worked really really hard on that book and that was all I you know that was my full-time job I didn't do anything else during that year and I loved it I loved doing it and then we got into the sort of the later design stage the layout stage um I also worked with Laura Edwards who's done the photographs for the other two books as well and I loved all the photos and um Tabitha Hawkins who's an amazing prop stylist you know we had a great time and then quite quickly it it changed and morphed into not really the book that I kind of had wanted it to look like or feel like and um I think that happens quite a lot with bigger publishers and also I think you know I, I had no idea how that process operates and how these things get put together and I really found that particularly towards the end and when we kind of had this finished article that I was quite unhappy with how it looked and how it came together um you know the photos I liked the recipes I liked but suddenly all these changes were creeping in even I mean it's a really minor detail but even to the point that the color and the tones of the pictures were all being changed and edited and I was very much being put into that sort of country living type category which I understand where it comes from but at, at that point in my life I really didn't want to be pigeonholed into that I kind of wanted to be a little bit more and you know I I felt like I was maybe being aged before my time with that book and so I didn't do any other books or recipe writing that's the bakery came along and I think it's about four years before I then um a different i I no longer work with that agent and it all kind of I think that project sort of made me realize I wanted to be at home I wanted to be in Dunkeld I wasn't really that interested in the London glamour of everything and it was a very money hungry environment which I didn't you know there's quite a lot of aim to profiteer from what I was doing in the Bake Off world and all of that and it just didn't sit well with me so I yeah we I'd no longer worked with agent and I then got uh, contacted by a lovely editor called Kajal um, from Hardy Grant and she said I'd love to write a book about the bakery and that's how Aaron came to be um, the book and then it's how Supper came to be as well and we had the loveliest experience of writing it it was much more natural I got a say in all elements and so kind of from a writing process they are worlds apart and I think it I hope it shows how much I enjoyed the other two and how much more relaxed it was and <laughs> you know how much more it was my thing and what I wanted to write about and and cook for and cater for and all of those things came through a bit more I, 
I hope. Such an interesting path. I feel like I know you from having read your books and I have read all the introduction. I've read them not just for this podcast, but before this podcast, you know, I wanted to read, you know, you, re- you have such a lovely um, way of with food and thinking about food and lifestyle and, and not just lifestyle in the marketing way. I mean, as in living your life in this very... Um, simple but thoughtful way both of them are beautiful books and and I, I don't feel the need to read gatherings I want to go out and get it but now that you've told me the Is story that a print? Like, you won't get it yeah I mean and I think that it's it's funny that you've kind of know that because I you know maybe that was kind of where the sort of relationship breakdown went but I didn't really want to promote gatherings and I didn't want to um sell it is a horrible word but I didn't want to put it out there because it wasn't something that I was proud of and I think that's so important particularly with books but any type of work is that if you don't if you're not interested in it and you're not happy with the outcome then you aren't going to sell it and it's not going to do well ultimately. I felt very very lucky and very grateful that the experiences I'd had before meant that I kind of could appreciate that was you know how it how it worked and and hopefully then results shows that the chapters in your books are so beautifully considered they're all focused around times of the day so 11 z's and I'm always looking for a for a time in the day as an excuse to eat so what <laughs> I love about your book is that there's so many markers of the day I'm kind of dangerous um also th- there's 12 now is it 12 hours 12 hours how what, what time of day is that and gloaming can can you just t- talk to me about those two chapters in particular? I think so. That's um, kind of coming from the old Scots and Gaelic language, um, which I do not speak. I wish I did, but um, my auntie speaks uh, Gaelic, which is great. So I did ask her a few times, and we were taught it at school. So I have a kind of basic understanding of it. Twelvers, which I think is how you pronounce it. I, I really like that idea of um, we sort of have this like 12 o'clock rush in the bakery, that kind of midday type thing of people coming in and just getting a jump on lunch or they're on the go or they're doing something. And I, again, because much like yourself, I want an excuse to eat at all times. I liked the idea of that being another sort of marker of when I'm going to eat throughout the day. <laughs> Um, And I think it's a different, you know, I think lunch is a sort of longer affair or it can be, it can be quite a nice process. And I sort of thought that captured something that's a bit, a bit faster and on the go, but hopefully equally as delicious. And then gloaming came first. So gloaming is kind of a lot to do with the light and dusk. And when the light starts to change, it starts to get a bit darker. And I... I really love the words, but I also really love that time of day, um, particularly when you've had a busy day in the bakery. We um, less so now that there's a bambino in tow, but we quite liked when that, uh, you know, I think it's a sort of a mood shift around that time, and people want to go for a drink, and it's kind of starting of um, unwinding, and um, we got up to all sorts of mischief uh, post work in those hours, and. I just I thought it was worth noting because I think a lot of the time with you know bakeries there's this focus on a really mental day and a lot of the time it is really crazy and the hours can be quite intense and it can be long but 
equally, you know, we did um, a lot of times, particularly in the food industries, that you have this lovely little spell where, you know, you do go for a drink together and yeah, cause mischief, which I like. In supper that came out last September, feasting is such a big component of the book. How do you sort of think about your personal menus? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think I a lot of it's probably quite selfish, which is maybe not a good thing to admit. But I do think sometimes it's that whole thing of, you know, what do you want to eat and and how do you want to eat it? And when do you want to eat it? And all of those things. I do tend to think about guests. And a lot of the time it's, you know, different people and different occasions. And sometimes it can be, you know, a lot of fun and quite easy and sort of lively. And then sometimes you do have a more formal, or maybe not formal, but a more sort of considered sitting down and eating. And the funny thing about supper is that most of that was written in lockdown when I was kind of putting on these fairly elaborate dinner parties for myself and James. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> um, and I think it's funny because it was one of those ones that I just, um, I sort of fell in love with entertaining again, despite that there was nobody else there to entertain but it felt like a really nice marker and um talking about you know times of day and things and just having that um sort of stop point and you know I'm now going to set the table and I'm going to cook a meal and and we did end up putting quite a bit more effort into you know a bowl of pasta than we ever would before and hopefully it's something that yeah you can cook for six eight people from it but equally you can take those recipes away and and do it just for yourself and yeah, dine out on a massive trifle for the whole weekend. Go for it. I did it. Loved it. <laughs> you have such a beautiful aesthetic. Are you creative director across all your projects? That is a very grand title for me, but yes. <laughs> I um, I think, and I'm sure you know this as well, when it's your business, you are everything. You are, you know, social media, you are marketing, you are creative director, you are cleaner, you're rotor writer, you're organized, you know, your accountant, you're everything. And so um the yeah, the creative side of things is a hat that I really enjoy wearing. But I am lucky that I have lots of really creative people on the team as well, which that helps the process. And you know, not everything turns out necessarily how I want it to look. I have to make peace with the fact that we have busy days, we have you know hundreds of customers and things have to be semi-practical sometimes which um is a bit annoying <laughs> but <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it also makes it part of the process and I think things change and you know look a certain way because of that and I have learned to love that side of it a little bit. As well as the bakery and two cookbooks, um, you recently launched um, LON, an online postal box service. How did that come about? Was it a brilliant lockdown idea? Um, I wish it was my brilliant lockdown idea. <laughs> um, we, so we signed for, um, Lawn is a wee kind of general store shop that is directly opposite the, or directly across from the bakery. And we signed that lease in January 2020. Had we known what was to come, we would not have signed that lease. But uh, I think like a lot of people, that's just 
the way that these things go. And we kind of quite quickly scrambled to, we opened up in July when the first restrictions lifted a little bit. And we sort of scrambled to open. We had no money, um, which in a similar sense, the bakery even started with very little, but um, it wasn't what I wanted it to look like. We couldn't get any builders or anything because of uh, various restrictions. And it was a very basic shop that we opened and then we just slowly added to it in between lockdowns restrictions different opening times um, changes of staffing all of those things and we've added it added to it and it's kind of become um everything that i want to be able to buy in a shop which is, is a very hard thing to describe it's um we have lots of local fruit and veg which i love fresh flowers loads of store cupboard stuff you know nice bits for your kitchen homeware things and it's just a kind of very selfish project where it's just things that I really want to buy <laughs> um and I think when various you know lockdowns came and went we were suddenly thinking you know we've got this whole shop full of stuff and the accountant actually turned to me and he said well what what can you send out what can you post and um, we started putting together these monthly boxes. They're £25. Um, and it's just a little, you know, they're only little boxes. You get sort of five to six items per box. And it's kind of a curated box of, you know, we try and theme them or have an idea behind them. Um, and just little treats that hopefully bring people a little bit of joy each month it's quite a nice I always love receiving things in the mail and started really small we now have an absolute mountain of subscribers and um ironically coordinating wow, and funny. ordering in for these boxes is crazy <laughs> um it's a lot more work than we thought it was gonna be but um it's lovely and it's really nice to um Andrea and Madeline who are running the shop at the moment you know they come up with these ideas and we sort of talk about the next three months boxes and how they're going to look and what form they're going to take. And um, it's just a nice way, particularly if we get new suppliers in and things that we think, right, okay, it'd be lovely to feature them and pop that in. And yeah, we have picnic ones we've done. The Valentine's Day one was really fun. We did Christmassy ones. Um, we've had sort of a, a cocktail type theme where people got a little cocktail glass and um, some mixers and a lime and um, little, um, there's this amazing company that I'm obsessed with called The Drinks Bakery that do these tiny, really delicious biscuits that I can eat a million of myself that are designed to pair with drinks. And it's just, it's a really fun project to do and I really like doing it. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's grown arms and legs. <laughs> Was there a point when you you can remember feeling like God, I'm running a lifestyle business here, not just a bakery? Was is there a time when that happened? I think probably. Um, I mean, when we first opened the bakery, we just had the bakery space, which you will see when you come. It's not so big. I think a lot of people are quite surprised when they visit us. We have eight small stools that you can perch on in the windows. We have a counter. We have an oven at the back and a coffee machine and then we have a sink and that's kind of it. It's a very small space um, and we used to bake everything in there, which was wild. And I remember after our first week of being open, turning kind of and being like, I don't 
I don't think the space is big enough. <laughs> and, you know, we'd spent 10 months renovating it in the first place, so it was pretty soul-destroying having that moment of realisation. Um, but we started looking for a kitchen pretty much immediately. And we eventually found one six months later. And I think once that opened up, I did find that quite difficult suddenly running between two spaces and um that did end up taking up a lot of my time um and it sort of means that your all hours are kind of the way bakery hours work you're kind of you're on the go and you're thinking whenever any element of the business is operating um but equally we live upstairs and it's really nice to be able to pop up and down and um particularly since I've had Ivo it's been great because I can you know be upstairs working feeding him you know the million nappy changes that are required but I can also pop down and speak to the team you know in two seconds it's quite a good balance um, in that regards. Mm. I read in one of your books that the local community had a big influence at the start of your journey with baking, especially when you moved to the second store. Am I right? Yeah, we've been really lucky that um, I grew up here. I have lived here for most of my days um, and my partner also grew up here. You know, we're both know a huge amount of people in the village and we're very lucky to have a lot of friends here as well. And I think having that support and that network meant it did feel a lot less daunting. I cannot imagine um, setting up a business, which I think you did set up in a town that you, you know, you don't know too many people there or it's new to you. And I really take my hats off because I needed that safety net. I was terrified. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, I didn't know anyone. Um, but I think that also my naivety back then I think helped because I just thought, oh, I'll open a shop. And I very quickly understood you don't just open a shop in a small community and not think anyone's nope. going to have something <laughs> to say about it very quickly realized oh right everyone wants to know what you're doing all the time um but now I now I love it and I have a, I have a amazing um community and and I feel very lucky for that actually so I've come full circle on that I, you know I feel completely immersed in I, I know everyone else's business now as well so <laughs> you're on the other side you now know that nobody else when I went to open up, I thought, oh, my goodness, everybody is so interested. They are also opinionated. But I love that because they were, you know, it's coming from, and I think this is the case in most places, it's coming from, uh, like, a caring place. They want, to, they want to see you do well and they want to see it thrive and they want it to benefit their village and you want it to benefit the village. And it is all a mutual, you know, place that it comes from. And I do, I always think, you know, God, if I'd opened up in a city or how much of that do you get and um, how much support do you receive? Because I think particularly in smaller places, the support is amazing. And I felt very lucky that we had that. How have you found striking a balance with your local community and the online community? Because I feel like they're very different and managing the two can be interesting. Definitely interesting is the word. Um, 
I find with the sort of local community, there's a sort of expectation. There's also potentially less interest in things that are deemed new or shiny or modern or slightly alternative. Um, and I think with local community, a lot of it can be winning people around. Um, Dunkeld as a town, um, when I was growing up, was fairly traditional. Um, and, you know, most of the places are your classic four o'clock scones and a cup of tea or a slightly burnt coffee, maybe. <laughs> um, not to do down Scottish hospitality, but that probably is the reputation that it had, and Dunkirk was quite like that. Um, so, you know, us turning up with flat whites and a refusal to make scones. We did initially, but we decided, no, we are going to do our thing. It's going to be what we want to do. Um, that was met with a bit of trepidation, I suppose. And then you have this online community that are desperate for everything to be you know, the best it can possibly be, the most aesthetically pleasing it can be. They almost want you to reinvent the wheel, I sometimes think. It's that whole, you know, it has to be new and fresh and changing all the time. And I think that it's quite difficult to get that balance. And it's also quite difficult when um, we're very lucky. We have quite a big online following for the bakery and we get a lot of people and trade through that. And I think that can be, you know, there's definitely some people in the village that kind of raise a few eyebrows when there's various you know <laughs> photo shoots happening while somebody's yeah. in a queue and you know all those sorts of things and I don't I don't think you can operate a small business um these days without that I think you need both elements um and it's hard enough to operate even when you do have both of them but the juggle of trying to please both parties is is very difficult and I'm a really tragic, desperate people pleaser. So it does take up a lot of my head space. <laughs> and lastly, my last question is, um, you are a woman of many talents. Are you someone that focuses in the now and follows their gut? Or do you find yourself planning far into the future? I am very much a now person. I do try and I do sort of have these kind of background thoughts of, oh, maybe this would be nice down the line and, you know, that would be nice. Um, but particularly business-wise, I find it very difficult when you're being pulled in so many different directions to actually um, create a kind of plan that goes so far ahead. I think with more so with hospitality than with um, lawn and the shop. Um, but Aaron, I do find, you know, it's, some weeks can be completely different to the week before. And I think you do have to be quite adaptable for that. And I find that quite difficult to plan for. A business particularly that has a front of house element and a staffing element, you know, we've got a team of 12 people now. It's very difficult to plan as much as I would like to, <laughs> perhaps. Flora, thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation and I have identified with so much of what you, you've said. I honestly have been in awe watching you from afar. And when you first came into the shop, well, I wasn't there and I was so annoyed. <laughs> I was like, damn it! <laughs> but, you know, I appreciate you coming in and 
I wish you so much luck with everything you do. I mean, everything you do is touched with gold. So thank you so much for sparing your time to chat to me. Not at all. Thank you. I loved visiting the shop so much so that my partner who was outside with the dog was like, where is she? Why is she taking so long? It was sort of a lineup of men outside waiting with us. All the women are having the best time of their lives. Lovely to talk. Hello, Natalie. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, tonight is the first workshop for my membership, so. I always feel very nervous throughout the day. Do you? I can't wait. I'm coming along this evening. Yeah. So I'm just, every time I sort of meet myself whenever I have one of my workshops, because teaching is something that's really new to me. What do you mean by meet yourself? As in like I face all my sort of self-sabotaging techniques. Yes. And what are the key things we will be focusing on? Well, the first session is always around vision setting and our intentions for the season. So it's how do we get clear on what we want and then how do we make some action steps to get there? But also within within season, it's always there's two parts to it. So there's getting clear on what we want, but also finding more appreciation for what we have. And the two things go really well and really um, hand in hand. Yeah. yeah, I found the vision setting so helpful. How often do you do yours? So I do mine once a month, but with season, I'm looking at how we can do it once a season. But I think it's just so important to check in with your vision regularly because I think we become really um, used to something very quickly that we can forget about it. Mm. So if we're not looking at it daily, it can suddenly, that's how we can get off track. And so that's why the second workshop's always around self-sabotage and like what are the things that we do that mean that we go off course and how can we keep ourselves more accountable? Yeah. Yeah, it's so helpful. And just even getting to know yourself and what those self-sabotage messages are. Mm. And until you sometimes are prompted to sit down and think, what are those thought patterns that really affect my every day exactly yeah. and I think actually now I'm I'm like a bit further along with the work and I really recognize mine I can have a bit of fun with them and I almost laugh at them on a day like today when I know I'm teaching in the evening and it feels you know there's a it's the excitement of it as well but mm. I get the nerves so the I adrenaline. Sort of laugh at myself and the thought patterns of well maybe I should cancel because of x yeah. y and z you know <laughs> obviously not going to cancel but I can look at them now and have a bit of a giggle to myself and just really see them for what they are which is just something that's trying to keep me safe yeah. really keep me comfortable and I don't want to be comfortable I want to be trying new things so yeah. it's just sort of getting over that hurdle yeah absolutely yeah. and you invite guests to join you for some of the sessions don't you yeah so we've got an astrologer now for the membership so she comes and does an astrology se- astrology session and this season we have a um, somatic and breathwork practitioner called Leslie, who is this amazing mover and brilliant woman. And I can't wait to share her work with everybody. Mm. Yeah. Breathwork is something that's really been talked about a lot recently. I feel breath coaching and breathwork is something that I've really noticed people talking about in the last I don't know, six months. You've probably Mm. been hearing about it for six (laughs) years, but um, is breathwork something that you are familiar with or is this going to be a very new thing for you as well? No, I am familiar with breathwork and I think it's probably become more talked about since COVID and I think, you know, it's regulating our nervous system and using our breath to do that. So I definitely use breathwork in my daily meditation as well. So a section of that, I will use breathwork as well as sitting there 
in silence um and it can just calm everything down or you can use it for different different things as well you can use it to amp up your energy if that's what you require so it's a really interesting practice it's something I'd like to train in at some point um Mm. but I definitely yeah I mean I recommend anyone who's slightly interested to to start looking into it because it can be a really helpful tool yeah and Mm. game changer in terms of your health or Mm. quite a few years ago I had chronic anxiety that's how I was introduced to meditation and observing how you breathe Mm -hmm. can be such an amazing indicator to what's going on you know you're breathing like from your chest or forgetting about breathing into the sides of your ribs it is a whole body thing breathing it's your throat it's everything yeah absolutely and I think you know in my most anxious years I was breathing primarily in my chest I didn't even like think about breathing through my stomach and I remember when I was taught about that that was like a game changer for me when I was like okay actually breathing in my stomach and taking that breath lower in your body it can just ground you more heavily whereas and you can actually induce panic through breathwork as well so it's really important to if you are going to start practicing breathwork to make sure that you're choosing the right exercises for what it is that you need Mm -hmm. so for example breath of fire if you are an anxious person can actually make you more anxious because it can almost bring that panicking state up yeah but if you're actually wanting that energy and you're feeling like I really want to like amp up my energy then breath of fire can be a beautiful practice yeah oh and how are you I'm good last week I wasn't really good because yes maybe there's something to the moon Mm. it was full full very very full yeah my head was very full (laughs) yes (laughs) um yeah last week I felt very just unnerved with my direction and obviously I'm doing this podcast but the podcast isn't taking up every day all day and I am sort of going down lots of paths to try and sort of pull together what I want to do in the future Mm. and I just was having a week where I just thought I don't know who I am or what I'm doing or where I'm going and I'm not very good at that really came out that I'm not very good at just relaxing and sort of leaning into that. I just, I'm like, I need a purpose. I need to do something. I need a list. (laughs) You know, I need to be ticking things off. And I thought I really don't kind of like that about myself either. Like I Mm. would like to be a bit more easygoing. Mm. But you've had the shop as well for eight years. And so that must have been like every day there's something demanded of you to do with the shop so it's such a change of pace so it's going to take time yeah get used to it yeah and I talked to my husband about it and he said the thing is what you're not realizing is that this struggle and this how you feel is part of it you know oh, I yes. know he's read Rick Rubin's new book yeah so he's so all it's, like, a, it's a good book what do you think of it's it? in the moment it's well I I've been waiting for him to finish it and he's okay. just finished so I'm gonna start now but he's I've read got a podcast a lot. as well and his voice on I the know podcast. Well, he's just amazing. I don't even listen to what he's saying have I'm you have you seen his um have you seen where he lives his no. meditate oh no yeah. check it out I'll send it to you later <laughs> it's unreal yeah he was saying this is all this struggle and this feeling that's going to get you to the next place because Mm -hmm. you're going to get so annoyed or so frustrated that you might just I don't know do something to combat that and then that could be the thing that makes you have the brainwave or the spark yeah and and I I it's so weird how things happen like that over the weekend and the end of last week that message that he said then came to me in a podcast that I listened to and this friendship circle that I have and it was like the universe was all saying 
stop fighting it just mm-hmm. flow through it and it will yeah. be okay that sounds so cliche <laughs> <laughs> gotta feel it to heal it feel it to heal it um but yeah I feel much better today That's with good. that in mind yeah so let's talk about today's podcast with Flora mm-hmm. what a lovely person yes. I just loved her yeah I mean it was she was just a breath of fresh air really to listen to yeah and so genuine mm-hmm. and you really feel like she is who she is when you listen to her yeah it, she feels very effortless in the way she describes some like really like big steps she's taken in her life seem to have been effortless for her like risk taking and I just know. starting things and taking that initiative with yeah. her career at such a young age as well yeah 21 to get your own premises to do a bakery I mean I'm thinking back I was a, a reckless child I mm. think at 21 yeah Whereas she obviously has a real, I mean, she says she's sort of wiser than her age, you know, yes. older than her age. Yes. Sometimes in those really wild decisions, there can be such beauty that can come from it because you're pushed to the edge. So you're having to really like adapt with everything that you do and just, um, you're living in technicolor. So there's always going to be challenges that come, but also from those like big challenges, there's going to be great reward as well. And I think yeah. that's what, why risk takers are often rewarded with great businesses. Mm. When have you felt at most risked (laughs) oh god (laughs) natalie (laughs) maybe that's too heavy yeah um let's talk about just uh risks in our lives just Mm. just just more everyday ones yeah or what what are the risks that you can remember well i'm a risk taker natalie i think as i'm getting older something is saying to me to take less risks and to be more considered and I think that does come with age and circumstance and responsibility but I've definitely had the years where I've just made decisions and then dealt with the consequences afterwards Mm -hmm. I mean pretty much up until 32 I was doing that really but did you even see things as a risk like you've had businesses before and you're in the throes of the beginnings of on balance did you even feel that that was a risk starting a business no no it's just like it's a passion isn't it and you think I'm just gonna do it yeah like it just I don't think forward in like 12 steps I just think forward one step and go it feels good I'm gonna go for it Mm -hmm. and deal with the consequences afterwards which has led to you know a lot of tension in my life for sure and that's why I think as I'm getting older I'm seeing that there's actually a balance at play there with risk taking and really not considering so much that you don't do something, but just adding that layer of consideration that I didn't have in my mm. younger years. Mm-hmm. What about you? Um, yeah, I think I'm pretty similar. I did find with Caro, I think employing people I felt was risky. Well, you've that got responsibility kind of, then. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and when it was such a tiny business where it's just me doing everything and then employing somebody, I don't mean shop assistants. Mm. I mean like somebody to kind of help look at bigger picture stuff with the business so they have a much higher wage right um so investing in somebody that has experience in a certain field that to me was like this could cripple me if Mm. it goes wrong um so that I saw as a risk but then yeah the risk that I was I faced with that is that I thought well I either stay at this level forever Mm -hmm. or I take that risk yeah and I think (laughs) you know it was a no-brainer for me Yeah. And I think when we run our own businesses, we're so used to doing, being able to do every element of the business that suddenly being like, I should probably welcome someone in who's got more experience here is actually quite an alien thing to do. But it's such a sort of grown up way to approach it and to sort of say, 
surround yourself with the best people surround yourself by people who are brighter than you in those areas um and you know and doing it as you said like realizing it's a risk and having some strategy around it and making sure you are looking at your return of investment and what that's going to look like for you yeah 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 i've had something i wanted to talk about which is quite serious which is pastries pastries what is your favorite pastry well i just googled it because i couldn't remember the name but it's called a tuberk and i had it in copenhagen and there's a like really traditional danish pastry with poppy seeds all over the top and it's just my absolute favorite you can get them in london in the scandinavian bakery which the name again i forget i know the one you mean yeah but um they're delicious they're sort of not too sweet but they have a sweetness to them and they're you know like laminated a bun, like a milky no bun it's like a brioche. croissant it's, it's, like, oh, it's, it's it a laminated pastry yeah so it's all flaky and delicious mm, and then a crust buttery. of poppy seeds on top that's my favorite i love the look of things like semlors which are also swedish mm. um with all the with the top cut off and the cream kind of yeah. bursting out is that, is that a brioche well i don't know i don't know actually <laughs> but the thing is with that i feel like i'm greedy so i look at that and i think god i want to devour that uh, but then when i eat it i'm always like mm, actually it is the the bun is not quite exactly what i wanted i just wanted mm. the cream mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i also like a classic almond croissant since i yes. had babies oh my god me too yeah like uh, the sweetness because there's something when you're pregnant your sweet levels go oh insane but i didn't know anything about nutrition when i had my first child and i lived on broadway market in london oh my god and every day i'd go to la bouche after i had the baby every day and have an almond <laughs> croissant and a, and a flat white yeah and not really understand what was going on with my weight at that yeah. point <laughs> yeah. well it's all baby isn't it until um, you but until the baby comes out you don't really no, know what. exactly <laughs> but yeah i mean a really good almond croissant is quite spectacular yeah mm. so it's a classic yeah and flora you've got her book haven't you yes i do don't you find that baked goods look so appealing to make Mm. I think it's just how beautiful they look you know the glazings and then the fruit if there's fruit and how Mm. they kind of pop open and the fans of pastry just so I I just want to make these little creations but oh my god is it such hard work I've never actually made anything because when I read through the recipe I'm like oh well when have I got time for that yeah folding and mine will never look the way the way it does in the book have you ever considered doing a cookbook well, I have considered doing a Caro book, and then when I closed the shop, I sort of put it on hold. I was thinking with your book idea, and something that I think you do so well is entertaining, and is there a way that you could do it around how to like entertain, rather than like cook for the family or make a meal? Like, How can you make these like beautiful tables and like a like lovely meal for like eight friends? Yes, I wanted to do, include hosting mm. into it as well, yeah. and different ways of hosting for different numbers of people, different kinds of people, types of gatherings. Your mother-in-law comes <laughs> over. It's a very different soiree to a drinks party friends, yeah. in the garden in summer or whatever, you know. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, and and I'm I might still do that at the moment. I'm thinking about possibly doing something in the space and actually giving cooking a go myself on Thursday lunchtimes just for the local community to get a bite to eat. Wow! I mean, I don't. You know, I, I'm not a cook. I'm not a chef. I've never had any training. I've barely had a lesson. So it will be very informal. I do think there is room in Bruton to do something for people 
that just want to grab a bite to eat yeah in like a a canteen style element to that wouldn't there of like people would be able to meet each other and exactly just a lunch break yes you know not a restaurant so many people work on their own in this area that to have that sort of lunch break space where they also see other people would be really like refreshing yeah yeah half an hour yeah so yeah like 15 minutes yeah you're on a timer (laughs) i actually did think that because there's so little school run i was like maybe i just put a timer on each table it's like you've got 15 minutes see ya (laughs) yeah very relaxed uh, community project speed lunch And your cookbook as well. You, mm. How did you find that whole process? I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> but your cookbook is so beautiful. And, mm. like, and you've got a well-being section at the back. Yes, yeah. I mean, similar, similar to Flora when she was talking about her first book, my cookbook was a bit of a dirty secret as well. <laughs> in that my business at the time was going under and it was going through a really challenging period. So... The idea of writing this cookbook and how it was sort of formed actually ended up being quite a painful process of like writing my half on my own. Um, but we worked with such an amazing team. Um, like my publisher was wonderful. We had Charlotte Heal doing the design for the book. That's why it's so elegant. And, I know yeah. as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, She's amazing. Uh, Emily doing the photography and um, an amazing food stylist. So, so it was a wonderful process in some ways, but very, very challenging in others. But I'm really proud of the book and I think it stands the test of time as yeah. well. Yeah. What things do you cover in the well-being? Does it sort of lead into what you're doing now with On Balance? Yeah, it does. And I think that's the, the funny thing. When I started On Balance, I was like, is there any, any link? And I think you're sort of questioning a few things with Caro and how you can link it into your future work. And um, I definitely feel that there's a link. And we were very into sort of well-being when we were running the almond milk company that has been in my life for years and years and years. So simple rituals as well, like really accessible. And I think that's how I sort of work in my business as well as sort of teaching how can you start small and be consistent rather than sort of grand wellness rituals that cost a fortune so it's you know lemon water it's like movement it's very simple Mm -hmm. simple rituals Mm. I know rituals I need to get I I'm so good at starting the rituals and then Mm. they don't actually become rituals because Mm. I do them for like a week yeah and that's not that's just Mm. testing something out so I really need to get past that how do I life is always just shifting and children make it so difficult children make it so so difficult and it is it's finding that motivation getting really clear on what your motivation is setting yourself up for success so if you know you've got curveballs, you know, you're going to have to the night before think, how am I doing it tomorrow? Like, I found that I can't plan weeks ahead because mm-hmm. of the kids. Like, I've tried that way of planning. It just doesn't work mm. for me because suddenly one of them will get chicken pox and you're like, okay, <laughs> great. So actually, if they get chicken pox, well, how am I going to find time to meditate yeah. on that day? But yeah, that motivation behind why you want to do something, I think yeah. is really important. Um, and do you think you can be flexible with yourself or is it important to set it every morning and I do this at 9.30am every day or say something comes in and you haven't been able to do it at 9.30 that's okay I'll move it to later in the day mm. do you think that's flexibility helps or hinders I, I think we should be flexible with ourselves I think if you have a rich life there's no way really to be so rigid with with things and I think that's a bit of a myth that you have to do everything first thing in the morning and actually it's a barrier for many people to be able to do anything yeah so it's it's more about making it a non-negotiable making sure you're checking in with your day ahead and seeing when are you going to fit it in at work and even me signing up to your seasons I have noticed that if it's in my diary and 
I have committed to your membership Mm. I come on a Monday it's like non-negotiable it's Mm. you know like you say it's the accountability Mm. if I hadn't signed up and I just said to myself I'm going to do this every you know whatever I would find something else would happen or I'd be like I'm too tired or Mm. dinner's too late now or you know yeah being being accountable to ourselves is quite challenging yeah like we have and I think it's a we have a way of sort of excusing ourselves from things depending on like what you're in a dialogue and programming like but a lot of the time it is very helpful to have something else outside of yourself that keeps you accountable yeah it just yeah. is yeah well thank you for being accountable with my podcast today natalie well, you're welcome <laughs> see, you <laughs> see you next week see you next week